Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of the international Marxist tendency in Britain. For this episode, we're going to continue our series on the lessons of the Communist International. If this is your first time tuning in, then we'd recommend going back and starting with episode one on the history of the Communist International. Now, as we discussed in a previous episode, the young, inexperienced forces which made up the Communist International often made some ultra-left mistakes which risked cutting the Communists off from the broader masses. And in the aftermath of the failed 1923 German Revolution, it was clear that there needed to be a change in tactics. So in this episode, Sarah Vedrovich, who's a youth organiser for the International Marxist Tendency in Britain, is going to explain the United Front tactic and how we can apply it today. If you'd like to learn more about the United Front tactic, then this is discussed in a book called The First Five Years of the Communist International by Leon Trotsky, which is available on wellreadbooks.co.uk. And before we start, as always, if you're listening to this podcast and you're convinced by the ideas and you want to do something about it by fighting capitalism today, then you should get organised and join the communists. If you're interested in getting involved in the international Marxist tendency, then head to the link in the show notes of this podcast or head to socialist.net forward slash join. And with all that being said, let's get started with this week's episode of Marxist Voice, the podcast of the IMT in Britain. The communists do not separate themselves from the masses who are being deceived and betrayed by the reformists and patriots, but engage the latter in an irreconcilable struggle within the mass organisations and institutions established by bourgeois society, in order to overthrow them all the more surely and all the more quickly. These words are written by Trotsky in the Manifesto of the Second World Congress of the Communist International. They speak of a key question of communist parties internationally at this time, the question of the united front. In Italy, Germany, France and Britain, the opposition of this theory, followed by the Stalinist butchering of it, was the death knell of revolution in Europe in this period. As we grow, the question of our attitude to the mass reformist organisations will become increasingly important. Therefore, we must spend our time now clarifying these lessons of the past on this question. First, let us set the scene of the class struggle at this time. Across Europe, the Second International had been shown to be totally politically bankrupt in 1914, where all but three sections voted in favour of the First World War. Each of these great socialist parties lined up behind their own ruling class, supporting the imperialist interests of their bourgeois, leading the way to the deaths of millions of workers. For the Second International, the jewel in the crown for them was the German SPD, a party whose leaders had historically had links with Frederick Engels. The political degeneration of the leadership, especially ex-Marxist Karl Kautsky, was a blow to the working class internationally. And this betrayal, combined with the inspiring example of the Russian Revolution, led to a series of left splits away from these socialist parties and the creation of communist parties across Europe, most importantly in Germany, Italy and France. The first job of these new communist parties was to differentiate their programme from that of the left reformists. This meant a sharp and decisive break with these parties of opportunism. 
In the manifesto of the Communist International to the Workers of the World, the first words written to mark the founding of the Third International, the old parties of the Second International are spoken of. This is what is said. If the War of 1870 dealt a blow to the First International, disclosing that there was, as of yet, no fused mass force behind its social revolutionary programme, then the War of 1914 killed the Second International, disclosing that the mightiest organisations of the working masses were dominated by parties which had become transformed into auxiliary organs of the bourgeois state. This applies not only to the social patriots, who have today clearly and openly gone over to the camp of the bourgeoisie, who have become the latter's favourite trustees and most reliable executioners of the working class. It also applies to the amorphous and unstable tendency of the socialist centre, which seeks to re-establish the Second International. That is to re-establish the narrowness, the opportunism and the revolutionary impotence of its leading summits. It goes on to say, the struggle against the socialist centre is an indispensable premise for the successful struggle against imperialism. Sweeping aside the half-heartedness, lies and corruption of the outlived official socialist parties, we communists, united in the Third International, consider ourselves the direct continuers of the heroic endeavours and martyrdom in a long line of revolutionary generations. So given the great betrayal of these socialist parties, Lenin rightly considered the primary danger to the Communist International to be opportunism. Ultra-leftism, in his view, was a healthy counterweight to the opportunism which he was fighting against. In the 21 conditions to join the International, the clear priority is on purging opportunism. For example, point number one says that all propaganda and ag agitation must bear a really communist character. Point number two says that any section of the common turn must regularly and methodically rid its ranks of any centrists or reformists. Point 15 says that any parties still with their social democratic programme must replace it immediately. So in fact, eight of the 21 conditions are directly about fighting against the reformism and the centrism of the Second International. And it was not until Lenin felt that this opportunism had been completely broken with that he turned his attention to the problem of ultra-leftism. Because whilst ultra-leftism may be a healthy counterweight to opportunism, it comes with inherent dangers which must be overcome. And this debate which took place on the tactic of the United Front is part and parcel of this fight to overcome ultra-leftism. A great deal of time was spent throughout the first five years of the Communist International discussing this topic. And this discussion was intertwined with the defeats of the post-World War I revolutions. The prospect of immediate revolution was waning and the masses were still under the leadership of the reformists. The task of the communist parties was to patiently win over the mass of workers by breaking them from their reformist leaders. The debate emerged of the best tactics to do this, and Lenin and Trotsky put forward the united front, 
the codified lessons of the Russian Revolution. This theory said that the communist parties must expose the reformists by fighting alongside them for the reforms that they claim to be fighting for. Within this, the communists can put pressure on these elements, showing that the reformists have no desire or ability to decisively win the reforms that the workers are looking for. Uniting in action with workers' organisations and putting forward an uncompromising communist line to show the reformists for what they really are, and demonstrating the superiority of the Marxist method in practice. A resolution explaining this tactic was drafted from the Executive Committee of the Comintern, titled On the United Front. And here, the basic components of the theory of the United Front are laid out, And I would suggest that all comrades go away and read this. It can be found in the uh, first five years of the Communist International book. But Trotsky says here, But wherever the Communist Party already constitutes a big organised political force, but not the decisive magnitude, wherever the party embraces organisationally, let us say, one-fourth, one-third, or even a larger proportion of the organised proletarian vanguard, It is confronted with the question of the united front in all its acuteness. If the party embraces one third or one half of the proletarian vanguard, then the remaining half or two thirds are organised by the reformists or the centrists. It is perfectly obvious, however, that even those workers who still support the reformists and the centrists are vitally interested in maintaining the highest material standards of living and the greatest possible freedom for struggle. We must consequently so devise our tactic as to prevent the Communist Party, which will, on the morrow, embrace the entire three-thirds of the working class, from turning into, and all the more so from actually being, an organisational obstacle in the way of the current struggle of the proletariat. So let us break down here what Trotsky is saying. The essence of the United Front in action. The job of all communists is to win over the critical mass of the working class to the ideas of communism. Every debate and discussion which happens within a communist international should focus on this question. How, at this stage that we are passing through, do we win over workers to our programme? When, as Trotsky says here, a communist party holds the attention of a large minority of the working class, the job is to work out how to win over those workers who are led by the reformists or the centrists. Simply telling the workers under the leadership of the reformists that the reformists will betray will not win them over. In fact, just criticising the workers' leaders will only make the workers think that you are the splitter, that you are dividing the workers' movement. As Trotsky described, we must create a tactic which means that the communists neither look like or actually become a barrier in the way of the proletarian movement. It is not as simple as telling the workers their leaders are betrayers. We must prove to them that they are betrayers and that the communists are the only true fighters for the working class. This requires aiming most of your fire at the bosses and catching the reformists in no man's land where they shouldn't be. 
This is how the United Front tactic was described by American Trotskyist Farrell Dobbs during the Teamster Rebellion. This is the essence of the United Front, to prove the absolute uselessness of the reformists by supporting them to do what must be done, to go all the way, and to show the workers in practice that these reformists will not do that. Then the communists must do what the reformists have failed to do. And in this, they can win over that mass of workers required for a successful revolution. As Lenin referred to it, the communists support the reformists like a rope supports a hanging man. And this tactic was not pulled from thin air, but was the codified lessons of the Bolsheviks from the Russian Revolution. The Bolshevik party was not the sole leadership of the Russian workers until the 11th hour of the October Revolution. The Mensheviks, the reformist party, who saw their task as being to build capitalism in Russia, were looked towards by vast sections of the Russian masses. And what did the Bolsheviks do? Did they turn their back on the workers who supported the Mensheviks, shouting from the sidelines that they were not revolutionary enough? Did they abstractly say that the workers would be brought to the Bolsheviks just by events themselves? No. The Bolsheviks took a concrete attitude of orientation to these workers through the slogan, all power to the Soviets. These were, at the time, the Menshevik-controlled Soviets. Firm in reformist tradition, the Menshevik shunned the opportunity to take power and instead threw their weight behind the bourgeois provisional government. So through this slogan, the Bolsheviks said to the workers, we are supporting your will, your representatives, and what are they doing? They are allowing the bourgeois forces, those who are against your interests, to call the shots. In September 1917, reactionary military leader Kornilov launched a coup. And during the coup, the Bolsheviks created a block with the Mensheviks, the social revolutionaries, and Kerensky, the reformist leader of the provisional government, to fight Kornilov, sending his troops packing and showing the workers that they were the only real fighters against reaction. So this united front with the reformist elements in Russia was precisely to break the support that the Russian masses had for them. The Bolsheviks and a layer of workers in Russia understood already that, re that reformists could not fight in their interests. However, a critical mass of Russian workers did not yet hold this position. And the Bolsheviks had to prove this through showing the workers that the reformists could do what was necessary if they wanted, but that they were too tied to the bourgeois to actually do it. This correct tactic from the Bolsheviks brought the masses towards them because they proved to the reformist workers that they were willing to fight alongside against the common enemy. And they also proved that the reformist leaders were unable to truly fight in the interests of workers. Ultimately, this led to a successful October Revolution. However, the young communist parties, who had just seen the betrayal of the reformists in 1914, were reluctant to go anywhere near the reformists they despised so thoroughly. Lenin and Trotsky tried to use the example of the Kapputsch in Germany to show both the dangers of the shunning of a united front and the great positive effects of this tactic when put into place. 
So after the defeat of the German Revolution, the reactionary military leaders um, wanted to smash the workers' movement uh, that existed. And a conspiratorial plan was hatched by von Lewitz and Kapp, who planned to sweep away the government and replace power in Germany with a strongman state made up of their battalions. The government fled the forces, uh, not wanting to put up a fight. However, resistance was being organised on the ground by the working class. A meeting of the General Commission of Trade Unions was called immediately. The SPD called for a general strike to defend the government and defend the republic. And the communists made the correct point that there could be no support for the government. Many key members of the government had been involved in this coup or great supporters of it. And the rest had fled, leaving the workers to put up their fight by themselves. However, with their main leader, Paul Levy, in jail, the comrades took an ultra-left position in the Communist Party. They concluded that there was no need to fight the military putsch now and that the real battles lay ahead in the future. So they said, should the working people in these circumstances go in for a general strike? Yesterday, the working class was shackled with Ebert and Nosk, which was the, uh, the SPD members in the government, uh, shackled to their chains in the worst conditions it cannot act. We believe our duty is to speak out clearly. The working class will undertake to struggle against the military dictatorship in the circumstances and by the means which it judges to be appropriate. These circumstances do not yet exist. However, the workers did not hear this call for passivity and instead on the 14th of March, train after train halted and by 5pm there were no trams, no water, no gas, no electricity. Fights between workers and soldiers began to break out. And negotiations took place amongst all of the political parties how to organise this movement that was happening on the ground. However, the communists refused to sign a document calling for a general strike. Violence broke out with the reactionary battalions marching, and the workers saw this as the time to arm themselves. The Social Democrats and Independents issued a joint call for a general strike. And soon after, the communists realised the mistake that they had made. But they still lagged behind the workers, not calling for the taking up of arms. However, even though their actions um, were uh, belated, the strength of the communists prevailed, rendering the cap Lutvist government completely paralysed. Under the leadership of the communists, a committee of action was formed. And this organised 75,000 workers immediately. And delegates were elected, 10 from the communists, 9 from the socialists, 1 independent and 1 democrat. So you can see the real importance that the communists had as soon as they uh, put their pride aside and stepped into the struggle. Um, they had this huge importance in organising this movement against this military dictatorship. The Social Democrats were even forced to say that this had been successful because of the strength of the communists. And this chapter of history shows the United Front in action, both in positive and negative. In the final analysis, the successful overthrow of the Cat Putsch 
was because of the German communists putting their ultra-left tendencies to the side to unite with other working-class organisations on concrete action against the coup. And not only did this allow for the defeat of the strongman government, which looked to smash the workers' movement, but it also meant that the workers were won over in great numbers to the communists in this period. So both the lessons of Russia and Germany showed just how vital this tactic was. However, this could not, as of yet, be understood by all the communist parties um, across the international. And one tragic example of this is the Italian party. In Italy, the betrayal of the socialists and the failure of the communists to win the mass of workers over to them was the death knell of class struggle in this period, ushering in Mussolini's regime of fascism. 1990 and 1920 in Italy were known as the two red years, Bieno Rosso. And in 1918, the General Confederation of Labour, the, C the CGL, which was the leading left union, had 230,000 workers organised within it. By 1920, after these two red years, it had 2.5 million workers organised within it. The working class, in their vast majority, turned towards the Italian Socialist Party, the PSI, and the CGL. They joined in their droves, but they did not stop at official activities of these organisations. Factory committees were organised across the country, especially in the Industrial Triangle, Milan, Turin and Genoa, where the working class was at its strongest. The PSI actually stood against these factory committees, saying that they undermined the direct control by themselves and the unions. The PSI was the model of what Trotsky referred to as left-centrism. They spent their time talking of revolution, but holding back the workers at every stage possible. When the bosses went on the offensive and threatened factory lockouts, the workers resolved that any lockout would be met with an occupation. And this began in a Romeo car factory and spread across Italy. Between the 1st and 14th of September 1920, factories of all heavy industry across not just the Industrial Triangle but also Rome, Naples, Florence, Palermo were occupied. The PSI and the CGL concluded that they would hold a vote of CGL members on whether they wanted workers' control within the limits of capitalism or revolution. Now, of course, this is a completely warped question. What is workers' control under capitalism? Workers have no control in a system owned and run by bosses. However, even with this warped question, over 40% of the CGL workers voted for revolution. However, the PSI, in centrist fashion, breathed a sigh of relief that they did not have to fight for a revolution, that the mandate was not there. Gramsci, um, alongside other communists inside the PSI, began to organise a left faction to stand against this opportunism and reformism, which was being exposed by the day. And by 1921, the Communist Party of Italy was created. One third of the old Socialist Party uh, went with the communists, and by their second Congress, they claimed 43,000 members. 
So clearly the potential for a socialist revolution was absolutely within sight. At this point, fascism was still numerically small. In 1921, the working class forced together their leadership to discuss how to defeat fascism. The Communist Party was invited to this alliance, but refused to involve themselves because of the presence of the PSI. Rather than use this position to expose the PSI and to win over the working class by clearly showing themselves as the only leadership able to fight fascism, they chose to leave the working class in the hands of these betrayers and hacks. Instead of having a real revolutionary leadership steering the direction of workers who looked to this alliance, the alliance was still birthed. Eventually, it called for a legalistic strike which was meant to beg the Italian bourgeois to help the workers fight fascism. The workers naturally saw the limits of this and looked to organise on their own, creating armed workers' militias against fascism. The Communist Party called for workers to withdraw from these militias because of the nominal involvement of the PSI. Very quickly, these militias failed, and the capitalist class asked Mussolini to come to Rome and form a government. This changed the course of European history, with the German bourgeois learning the benefits of fascism to their survival. Had the Italian Communist Party taken these opportunities in 1921 to win the working class fully over to their side, the working class of Italy could have taken power, showing the Germans another lesson, one of socialist revolution. This could have sparked revolutions across Europe, cutting across the degeneration of Russia and stopping the Second World War and the Holocaust. Sadly, the immaturity of the Italian communists means that history took a different path. Dialectically, cause becomes effect and effect becomes cause. And as we know, the failures of these revolutions across Europe laid the basis for the degeneration of the Russian Revolution. The Stalinist bureaucracy was characterised by narrow-mindedness, lack of foresight and confused zigzags. And before this degeneration had fully taken place, the Stalinist Comintern had sat far to the right of the Bolsheviks, looking to develop relationships with people like Chiang Kai-shek in China, the nationalist bourgeois leader who ended up drowning the revolution in blood. But by 1927, the Stalinist bureaucracy swung wildly to the left, skipping over the uniting, United Front and branding social democrats as social fascists. They said that because the previous period had proven that social democrats could not be trusted to fight against fascism, they were themselves fascists. Stalin claimed that objectively, social democracy and fascism are not antipodes, but twins. And Stalin now announced that capitalism was in its final crisis. But this was an idea that Lenin had always fought against, precisely because he understood that it would be used exactly as Stalin used it, to say that workers would naturally come over to the ideas of communism and that the communists do not need to struggle to win their position in the working class. The communist parties, which Lenin and Trotsky had tried to guide in the right direction, 
had now undergone years of confusion from being led by the Stalinist Communist International. In Britain, the communists uh, proclaimed that it was a crime equivalent to strike-breaking to belong to the Labour Party. Worse in Germany, this led to the KPD supporting a referendum put forward by the Nazis to oust the Prussian SPD coalition government. And this did not succeed in getting rid of the SPD, but only succeeded in weakening the view of the communists, the KPD, in the eyes of the masses. As the threat of fascism grew, so too did the need for the United Front. However, the ultra-left leaders took an intransigent position. So Talman, the leader of the KPD, said, Trotsky wants in all seriousness a common action of the communists with the murderers of Liebknecht and Rosa. Trotsky has attempted several times in his writings to turn aside the working class by demanding negotiations between the chiefs of the German Communist Party and the Social Democratic Party. In fact, it was the KPD, not Trotsky, who was turning aside the working class, because large swathes of the working class were still under the illusion that the reformists could act in their interests. The job of the communists here was to show the workers that they must join the communists to fight for them. Instead of this, Communist workers were told to beat up socialist workers, to break up their meetings, and to even beat the children of socialist parents. Talman put forward a slogan, chase the social fascists from their jobs in the plants and the trade unions. So because of this absolute madness, when the KPD called for a general strike, the socialist workers did not back them. Workers were completely paralysed by the actions of their leadership and they had no idea what they needed to do to defeat fascism. As we know, this impotence led to Hindenburg bringing Hitler into government, and the fascists taking power without any real opposition. Hitler even made the point that he had come to power without the smashing of a single windowpane. Trotsky paraphrases one of Aesop's fables in his pamphlet What Next? Vital Questions for the German Proletariat on the policy of the third period. And he says this, A cattle dealer once drove some bulls to the slaughterhouse, and the butcher came nigh with his sharp knife. Let us close ranks and jack up the, ex the executioner on our horns, suggested one of the bulls. If you please, in what way is the butcher any worse than the dealer who drove us hither with his cudgel, replied the bulls, who had received their political education in the Manuelski Institute but we shall be able to attend to the dealer as well afterwards. Nothing doing, replied the bulls, firm in their principles to the counsellor. You are trying to shield our enemies from the left. You are a social butcher yourself. And they refused to close ranks. Trotsky sadly understood exactly what was happening in front of him. The Stalinist bureaucracy was too wrapped up in working out what would benefit it that it could not look at what would benefit the working class. This swing to the left and the theory of social fascism was a way to shore up support from the ranks after the failures which had come before. However, it was no more correct than the crimes of the period before it. Then, characteristically, the Stalinist bureaucracy zagged back to the right. Feeling firm in their position as a bureaucracy, 
They had no interest in revolution in other countries. By this point, the Communist International was no longer making confused mistakes, but actively working against revolution abroad, as this would threaten their position. In both France and Spain, the communists held back workers from revolution by arguing that they must unite with the liberal bourgeois against fascism, and they engaged in what we now call a popular front tactic. Instead of uniting with workers' organisations, uniting with non-proletarian parties. And this not only completely misunderstood the theory of the United Front, which was never intended to include representatives of the bourgeoisie, but it completely misunderstood fascism from a theoretical point of view. Fascism arises precisely out of the needs of the bourgeois in crisis. When the bourgeois knows it needs to smash the working class as thoroughly as possible, they hand over the power to the fascists. The liberal bourgeois bring the fascists into government and hold down their boot on the neck of the working class. But the communist parties, having been disorientated and demoralised by the constant zigzags of Stalinism, pushed back the revolutionary fervour of the working class and ushered in an era of European fascism. I wish that I had time to talk more about the specific uses of the Popular Front, however I'm quickly running out of time. But for now, I will draw to a close. We have seen in the last period how quickly an organisation like ours can grow in size. If we do our work correctly, it will not be long before we are posed with the question of the United Front in a serious way. When one third or two fifths or whatever sizable section of the working class looks towards us for answers, we will be posed with the question of how to win over the absolute majority of the working class. Until the banks are expropriated and the Soviets are in control of economic and political life, until the dictatorship of the proletariat is in place, the whole working class is not won over to our ideas. Our job will be to expose the corrupt leaders of the working class and to show ourselves to be the most effective class fighters. As to not make the same mistakes, we must learn these lessons of the past. We have a great gift in hindsight and we must take from it what will allow us to lead the working class in these coming battles. Already, certain union leaders and left reformists are exposing themselves to be useless in the class struggle. We must develop our organisation to a size where instead of commenting on these events and winning over handfuls to our programme, we will lead the battles for the best methods of class struggle in the traditional organisations of the working class. This cannot be something far away in the distant future of our organisation. Time between now and then cannot be measured in decades, but must be measured in years. By truly understanding and applying the tactic of the United Front, we can win over the masses of workers to the programme of revolutionary communism. But the task of preparing ourselves for this starts today. <laughs>